Well, good morning, everybody. Morning. Good to see you guys. Happy New Year. Hopefully you guys had a great time. We, uh, this is the first year in, since we've had kids, pretty much, that Lauren and I have stayed up till midnight to celebrate. It was great. We had friends. Unfortunately, our kids did not get the memo that we had stayed up till midnight the night before. And they woke up at 6.30, still expecting us to do the same thing as we did in 2014. So let's just say it'll probably be the last New Year's we stay up till midnight for, for a long time. But I hope it was great. It, in all honesty, I love New Year's. I love New Year's resolutions. I love New Year's goals. I love looking back nostalgically on the year, thinking of all the good things that happened, all the bad things that happened. I know it's really cliche, and I'm certainly not the only one who thinks this way, but I just, I love New Year's. I love the process of, of, of thinking through goals and all that stuff. And I tell you that to warn you that all that has come through in this message. That as, as I prepared for this message, knowing that I'm preaching on January 4th, the first day after we have begun the new year, all of my instinct to look back in this year and anticipate what's ahead has come into this message. So I'm saying that to warn you, that this is very clearly a nostalgic New Year's message. Um, and, and, but, but the truth is, I actually think it's kind of healthy. I, I think it's healthy for people to do this. I think it's healthy for people to look back and kind of also set goals for the, what's ahead. And I think it's healthy for churches to do this too. I think it's healthy for churches to look back on, on the year or a period of time and say, what, what was good? What did God do? And where are we at, honestly? And then also to look forward and say, what are some goals? What are some things we hope for in this upcoming year? And so that's what, what's coming into this message. And, and as I prepared for this, and as I was thinking through this last year, the, the truth is, this last year was kind of a crazy year. You know, between ISIS and Ebola, between Ferguson and immigration politics, between all those things, it was kind of a scary year. It was a pretty frightening year. There was a lot of unrest. There was a lot of a lack of solutions. There was stuff happening in the church abroad that's just terrible. Hundreds, of, uh, uh, hundreds and, and thousands of Christians dying and being incarcerated around the world. Christianity here in America kind of still continuing to lose steam. A lot of opposition growing. Within this church, despite a lot of really, really great things that have happened within this church, there's also been a lot of kind of hard things that this church has gone through. We've gone through a lot of, of staff shifts. I am one of those staff shifts. We've gone through a lot of change. And, and fortunately, Lord, God be praised, none of this was the result of anything bad. But change is change, and change is hard. We've, uh, as Frank shared this with you guys about a month and a half ago, we've been having some real uh, problems with regards to our building situation, both here and kind of what we hope will be a future building, which we have not located yet. And we're having a lot of problems with that that, that can be alarming coming into 2015 with no real answers for that. We, we've gone through, I know many people within the congregation that have experienced a ton of loss, a lot of brokenness, a lot of hardship within their family, within their work, within other things. That If we were to look back and ask people within this congregation, was 2014 a good year? They would say, kind of. You know, we, we are about to launch a new congregation out of this church. That means we are sending not only some of our best staff, we're sending Sean Myers, we're sending some of our best and brightest people and volunteers, we're sending uh, children's ministry workers, we're sending people out to a new work, which is really, really exciting. Don't get me wrong. It is very exciting that we're doing that as a church. We are a church planting church. Our mission is to plant healthy local congregations. This is what we are doing. This Peoria will not be the first church we plant. It, it, or it won't be the last, it is the first church we plant. It will not be the last church we plant. This is something that we are going to continue to do. 
But every time we do it, I got to tell you, it's scary for the church planting church. It's scary for us to realize that we are going to be down like 12 workers downstairs. It's going to be hard knowing that four or five of our best RCs are going to be starting a new work in which, of which we will not really see any tangible benefits to. It could be scary going into a situation where we don't know, where our status quo is, is affected. It could be frightening stepping into this. And so as we walk into 2015, I'm thinking through, and, and, and I'm looking at our culture, I'm looking at our church, and what I'm sensing is this kind of per, pervasive and underlying fear. This woe, this anxiety coming into this year as to what this year will bring, both for our, for our country, both for our city, and for our church. And because of that, I, I, I wanted to preach on this passage. I, I wanted to, to do this because I think this passage answers, answers two very important questions that we as a church have to answer, that we as individual Christians have to answer, and the way we answer them will affect everything about us. And those two questions are, who will we fear And where will we hope? Who will we fear? And where will we hope? Now, we're going to answer those questions as we go through the sermon. But before we do that, I want to give you a little background on Isaiah. Isaiah was the author of the person who wrote what we read earlier. Isaiah was a prophet living around 8th, 7th century B.C. And he was honestly, he was living at a very, very scary time in Israel's history. Israel was about to be invaded by Assyria at the time that he was writing this. Assyria was really bad news. Assyria would come through with their iron weapons, their chariots, their siege tactics, and pretty much kill everything. That's what they were known for. They were known for their army. They would destroy everything, everybody that got in their way. And if for some reason you did survive, they would take you as slaves. They would strip you of your identity. They would strip you of your, any hope of ever returning back to where they took you from. They would assimilate you. They, they said you basically either you conform to being an Assyrian or you die. That was what was knocking at their door. The Israelites that he was writing to at the time were afraid that they were about to be killed. They were afraid they were about to see family members killed. They were afraid they were about to see their houses burned down, their crops destroyed. They were afraid that if they did survive that they would have to be taken away from their land, this land that they loved, this land that was given to them and never returned, that they would never be Israelites again. Honestly, when, when I look at their fears and what they were, the circumstances they were in, it makes all the things that I'm scared of seem really stupid. It makes it seem really small. But yet, even then, even when he's saying this, this is what Isaiah writes. This is what he says to them. He's, and he's writing mainly to his disciples at this time. As this kind of a way of encouraging them and warning them. And he writes this, starting in 11. We just read this, but I want to read it again. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Isaiah, after seeing most of his kinsmen abandon God, the rulers, the priests, everybody abandon God, he looks to his disciples and asks them that question. Who will you fear? Will you fear the Assyrian army? Will you fear the other Israelites? 
that have turned their backs on God, that have turned their backs on each other to save their own skin? Will you fear them or will you fear the Lord? That is the question he's asking them. Will you fear the Lord? And I think after reading this, his answer is really, really clear. We don't have to do a ton of digging to figure out what he's trying to say here. He's saying in very uncertain terms that regardless of what's happening, regardless of how frightening our circumstances, regardless of how scary the things around us are, that we are to fear nothing but the Lord. Fear nothing but the Lord. So the other day I was, um, my son Kyler, who's four years old, who gave up napping when he was two, um, which has been great for my wife, uh, I was trying to get him to nap. He really needed a nap. He was, it was, he was a grumpy little man. And trying to get him to nap, I had just seen the movie Exodus, Gods and Kings, uh, with the uh, staff. So I was laying down with him, trying to get him to nap, telling the story of Exodus, because he asked me what I had just seen. Now, I told him that I saw the movie, and then I told him the story of Exodus. Let's just say the, the movie missed uh, a few things. Um, but uh, So I told him the story of Exodus, got to the Red Sea, and he just asked me to keep going, so I did. So I, I, I kept going. I told him the story of how they wandered through the desert, how they got, there was the golden calf, how Moses went up on the mountain and God talked to him. I told him how Moses led the people of Israel right to the, right to the edge of Israel and how he sent spies in to go look at the land. And I told him how Moses handed it over to Joshua. This is a very long attempt at unsuccessfully getting our child to nap. Um, I told him about Joshua going to the land and about Jericho. And I was using graphic, but as tame as I could language to describe this to a four-year-old. And it, it, was, it was interesting, as I was describing who Joshua was, Joshua, before he became the leader of Israel after Moses, was one of the 12 spies that was sent in. So, I, so Moses sent 12 spies right before they went into the land to look at Israel. Uh, they wanted to see what they were up against, see what it was like. And they looked and they said, look, the land is great. They described it as a land flowing with milk and honey. There was cows, there was fields there. There was beautiful vegetation. There was beautiful homes. It was a great land. It was everything that God had promised it would be. But there was also giants. There was also these big fortified cities. And all the spies came back and said, I don't care how good the land is. We shouldn't go there. We shouldn't go in there. But Joshua wasn't afraid. Joshua said, no, we should go in there. And, and so I was telling Kyler this, and I asked him this. I asked him, Kyler, why do you think Joshua wasn't afraid? Why do you think Joshua wasn't afraid of this? And I'll never forget to this day, uh, to any day, what he said at that moment. He looked at me and he said, Daddy, God is taller than the buildings. God is taller than the giants. God is taller than everything. I was just like, excuse me, what did you just say? It was like one of those shocking moments. This kid, he doesn't understand why it's not okay to drink bath water or, or to lick shopping carts and stuff like that. He doesn't understand why that's not okay, but he gets it. He gets this. He gets why we have nothing to fear if we believe that God is who he says he is. Do you guys get that? He understood that. Now, full disclosure, when I was telling him about the golden calves, I was kind of telling him that Israelites made a cow that was supposed to be a god, and uh, he suggested to me that we go get some paper and cranes and we can make our own craft gods. So let's just say we, we still have some work there. Um, but, but really, like, I, I heard him say that and as I was preparing for this message, I couldn't, I couldn't forget it. 
God is taller than the buildings. He's taller than the giants. He's taller than everything. Basically, what Kyler was saying is what Isaiah is saying here. He says, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. God is taller than the Assyrians. He's taller than everything. This is the consistent theme throughout the Bible as to why we should not respond to other things by being overwhelmed by them, by being overcome with them with fear. It's what Jesus tells his disciples right when he's about to send them out to go teaching and, and preaching throughout Judah. He says this, he says in Matthew ten twenty eight, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy, who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Talk about a, a really great pep talk before sending them out. Um, but this is the consistent answer. This is why we should not be overcome by fear. Why in any circumstances we can always stand strong and be courageous. And it's because it doesn't matter how scary the thing is. It doesn't matter how frightening it is or how real the threat is. Whatever it is, it is not God. Whatever it is, it is not God. Look, guys, I, I know the fear of where you, you'll, like, read through your bank statements, then you'll read through your bills, and, realize, like, and you just do the math. Like, it's just not there. It's just not going to work. I've been there. It's really scary. I know what it's like to, to know that I'm going to have to send my kids out into a world of which I will have no control over. That's scary. I know what it's like when you are constantly hearing the news about school shootings and and like violence, and racism, and all these different things, and you have to wonder, will we be next? I know that fear, I get it, but this is what Isaiah is saying, this is what the Bible says, and this is what I'm saying right now, that it doesn't matter what those things are, those things are not God. The worst thing, and this is going to sound like a strong statement, the worst thing that any of those things can do to us is kill us. Now, most of them, by the way, won't, but none of them have the power over our eternity. And that is what God is saying. Don't fear the things that the worst thing they can do is kill you. Fear the only person who has any power over your soul. We should fear nothing but the, world, but the Lord. You know, it, it, Isaiah, after making this statement, he, he, he's saying, but make the Lord holy. And all he means by that is, is recognize that God is who he says he is. Recognize that he is different from everything else. Recognize that he's better than everything else. He's bigger than everything else. He says, if you do this, he says one of two things will happen. If you do this, God will become a sanctuary. However, if you don't do this, God will become what he says, a stumbling block, a rock of offense, a snare, and a trap. So if you do this, if you fear God above all other things, God will be a sanctuary. In a very real sense, it will put all the other fears that we can experience in our life in their rightful place. That's what happens when we fear God above all things. It puts all this other stuff in their proper perspective. So I was, uh, growing up, I was a Civil War history nerd. Um, when I was like 11 and 12, while other kids were playing with soccer balls and playing video games, I was reading Civil War books. It was a very, very lonely childhood. Um, but uh, I, I, one of my favorite stories is how uh, the General Stonewall Jackson got his name. In the first battle of Manassi, um, he was there as bullets were flying around him. 
uh, uh, cannonballs were going off all over the place. He was just standing there. He was just doing his job. He wouldn't flinch, wouldn't do anything. And one of the other officers looked over at him and then looked towards his men. He said, hey, look at Jackson over there, standing like a stone wall. And then he used that to rally the troops, and that's how he got his name Stonewall Jackson. Um, after all this was done, one of the soldiers went up and asked Jackson how he could do this, how he could stay so cool in the midst of such heated battle. Now, Thomas Jackson was a very, very fervent believer. He was a very strong Christian. And this is what he said. He said, My religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to be always ready, no matter when it may overtake me. That is the way all men should live. Then all would be equally brave. To those who fear God above all things, he is a sanctuary. But to those who don't, he is a stumbling block. So what, what, what Isaiah is saying is that if, if you do not fear God above all things, we do not revere him as holy, what will happen is that these other things that, that can overcome us will. The things that we fear apart from God will eventually overcome us. That's, that's kind of what he's saying in verses 20 and 21. We'll get to later. That all these things that we're scared of will overcome us. God will let it overcome us. See, what happens when we don't place God where he should be is all these other things begin to take on a disproportionate and inflated power. All these other things take on a power that they don't actually possess in our life, both to destroy us and, as we'll see later, to save us. So unless we are are placing God in his rightful place, revering him as holy, fearing him above all other things, all these things that should never overcome us, should never overwhelm us, we are giving them the power to do so. And that's kind of what he says. So, so that's how he becomes a stumbling block, a rock of offense, a snare, and a trap. We will be given over to those things that we shouldn't be fearing. And not only that, but as I just said, things take on a new power that they shouldn't have, that they don't have, not only to destroy us, but to save us. And so not only do we turn to them for the things that we fear, but we turn to them for the things that we hope for. And that's what Isaiah continues to talk to. And, and, and this is where we'll, we'll answer that second question. The first question is, who, is who, should we, who will we fear? And Isaiah says, fear nothing but the Lord. The second question is, where will we hope? Where will we hope? At the time that Isaiah was writing, pretty much everybody but his disciples had turned their back on God. People just weren't following him. And uh, they, they did so, the rulers and the priests and, and them did so by finding uh, um, basically uh, allies with other nations. So at the time they were looking to Egypt to come save them from the Assyrians. The people would go to the, basically these fortune tellers or they call them mediums and necromancers, which is people that would conjure up the dead. And so you'd ask a question, you'd say, you know, I'm kind of scared of what's going to happen. I think I'm going to ask my great aunt, um, Thelma what she thinks about it. And so they'd go and say, great Aunt Thelma, what do you think? And they would do their thing and they'd say, I think it's going to be great. And that's basically how it would go. And uh, it, it's funny, the words that they use, chirp and mutter in the Hebrew, that, that's, those words would be translated later to the same words that we use for ventriloquism. So this is what Isaiah thinks of these people. He does not think very highly of these people. But, but this is what's happening. All the people around him are either turning to allies or they're turning 
to magicians. And in the midst of all of this stuff, Isaiah is looking at his disciples and saying, you need to answer this question differently. Let's read uh, in 8, 16 through 20. It says, bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, they will not speak according to this word. It is because they have no dawn. Just Just as Isaiah tells his disciples to fear nothing but the Lord, he tells them, hope in nothing but the Lord. Hope in nothing but the Lord. Now I'm going th- to, I think it's great because he actually gives four, I think, really clear examples of what that actually looks like in our lives. That's how we place our hope in the Lord over and above all other things. But before we do that, I, I don't want to brush over this whole, the, the way the Israelites turned their backs on God to other things. I think it's easy for us to say, well, we're not, like when things got tough, I didn't go ask a fortune teller what my grandma thought about it. So I'm not doing what they're doing, so I think I'm okay. But, because the truth is, I think in our culture, we have mediums and necromancers. We have systems of idolatry that we will oftentimes turn to instead of turning to God. I know it happens in our culture, and sadly, I know that it, it will carry over into the church. We need to be aware of what's going on. We need to be aware of when we are turning good things into idols. You know, and this isn't an exhaustive list, but these are some of the things that I've noticed some of the ways that we'll put our hope in other things apart from God, I think we'll put them in our political systems oftentimes. Words that I'll hear and kind of statements that I'll, that I'll hear a lot is, you know, if, if Congress would just pass this bill, or any bill for that matter, um, then we would be okay. Or if the president would do this or that, then we'd be fine. And we not only project that upon ourselves and think that our domestic issues are going to be solved by politics, but we project that in other countries too. We say if the Middle East would just embrace democracy and freedom, then everything would be fine. I've heard that statement. I've made that statement. It's putting our hope in something other than God. Another area that we do this is in, in our economic systems. And this is one that, that really makes me sad because I know that I've thought this, I thought this for so long. Um, and I don't think Christians would put it this way. But this is ultimately what we're saying is that the great hope for the poor in our country and abroad, is not Jesus, but it's capitalism. That we live in a world that is filled with opportunity. We live in a free market that regardless of your background, regardless of your circumstances, if you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and participate, you too can get yourself out of poverty. I hear that all the time. Guys, the great hope for the poor is not capitalism, it's Jesus. We hear it over and over again. We find our hope in something other than God. We see this with education. Nelson Mandela uh, wrote one time, he said, education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. We hear that and we would resonate with it. And no offense to Nelson Mandela, but he's wrong. Education is not the most powerful tool which we can use to change the world. It's God. It's Jesus. He's the one who will change the world. But we put our hope in our education. 
We'll put our hope in science. We'll put our hope in cultural and social trends. The newest parenting idea, the, the, the greatest diet craze or, or, or workout regimen. We'll, we'll put our hope in either conventional medicine or, or natural medicine, whatever it is. We'll put our hope in these things, but they are not God. They have no power to save us. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that these things in the rightful place are bad, so don't mishear me in that. But the moment we put our hope in those things, the moment we fear those things over and above God, the moment we see those things as doing what only God can do in our lives, then they become bad. Then they become idols. And we need to hear this, that in God's eyes, when we do things like that, it is no different from when the Israelites would go to these like creepy little ventriloquists to find out what their future would hold. It's not like we have a more sophisticated form of idolatry. Idolatry is idolatry to God, and it's just as ridiculous and just as, as offensive to him now as it was then. So we do this too. We need to see this. I do this. My gut reaction is always to find hope in something other than God. And that's why it's so important that we find our hope in God and, and kind of live the example that Isaiah lays out. So I, I want to look at this because there's four ways in which he kind of shows how are we finding our hope in the Lord? How are we going to find our hope in God over and above all other things? And the first one is, and I think it's the most crucial of them all, is that we are to find our hope in God's word. We're to find our hope in God's word. In verse 16, Isaiah writes, Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. And later in verse 20, He writes, to the teaching and to the testimony. They will not speak according to this word. It is because they have no dawn. These two words, teaching and testimony, the the, uh, Hebrew words Torah and Teuda, which is just basically his way of saying the Bible. They didn't have the New Testament at that time. They wouldn't have called it the same thing, but this is his way of saying everything that has been written that God has revealed to us through his prophets, through his servants, that's where we're to go. That's where we're to start. That's where we are to find our hope. That instead of turning to magicians or turning to alliances, we are to read, to live, and abide in God's word. We are a word-formed people. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. See, when God created the world, he, he spoke words into the void. When, when God rescued Israel out of Egypt, He brought Moses up onto Mount Sinai and gave them the words by which his people would live. The reason why David was revered as such a great king is because he lived and led according to the law of God. When Hezekiah and Josiah, who were the two reformer kings in Israel's history, Hezekiah was actually living at the time of Isaiah, and this is the reason why Jerusalem wasn't destroyed after this. Hezekiah, the reason, the way that they reformed and the way that they saved their kingdoms is by returning to God's word. When Ezra and Nehemiah came back with the exiles after everything had been destroyed, to Jerusalem, the temple, not only did they rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple, but they rebuilt the culture by returning to the scripture, by reading it, by living it out. Jesus didn't see himself in opposition to the scripture. He did not see himself in opposition to what was written, but he saw himself as the fulfillment, as as the culmination of this life-giving, hope-giving word. John actually calls Jesus the word become flesh. 
Paul, later in the book of Galatians, says, don't trust any other gospel that is in contradiction to this word. He tells Timothy in a letter to him that you are to trust all of Scripture because it's all of it is God-given and given for our flourishing. And John in the book of Revelation says, don't add anything to this. Don't take anything away from this. This is God's word. We are a word-formed people. And the way we see this book, the way we hold this book in our lives, affects everything about the way we can put our trust and put our hope in God. To the teaching and to the testimony should be our battle cry. Should we be what we live by? When we are straying, when we are far off, to the teaching and to the testimony. Our, as a church, our ability to follow God, our ability to see Him as our, our fear, see Him as our hope, is in direct relation to where we hold this book in our lives. I guarantee you, you will be far more susceptible to trusting in other things to hoping in other things, to fearing other things, if you are not living, meditating, abiding, and doing what is in this book. It's not enough to just come and hear it preached on Sunday, although that's good. It's not enough to just go to your RCs and, and talk about it or talk about some other book. It, it's, it's not enough to read every Tim Keller, N.T. Wright, John Piper book ever written. There is no substitute for the scriptures. There is no match we need to live, we need to abide, and we need to read his word. We need to read the Bible. I love the way he puts it to Ezekiel. He, he says, take and eat this book. This book should be our life sustenance. It should be the most steady part of our diet. It's gluten-free. We, like, we, all of us can eat it. Actually, uh, Jesus does say he's the bread of life, so some of us can eat it. Uh, just kidding, that was a really stupid joke. Um, but really this is, this is how we are to live this is how God calls us people to live to the teaching and to the testimony we are to find our hope in his word if we want to fear God above all things revere him as holy and hope in nothing but him we need to see this as our final and utmost authority in our lives we will fear nothing but the Lord and hope in nothing but the Lord when we make his word our ultimate hope do you guys get that? Do you guys hear that? And this is kind of, I, I think this is why he mentions this first because this is kind of the one that all of it hangs upon. If we don't have this, all the other things that I'm going to say can get out of whack. We need to hope, we need to filter everything through this book. But there are three other things that Isaiah points out as to how in real life, everyday life, how we can find our hope in the Lord over and above all other things. First is that we find our hope in his word, and the second is that we find our hope in God's presence. In verse 17, Isaiah writes, I will await for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Now this is where we as Christians who are living after God's presence had actually been brought into the world through Jesus have kind of the benefit of hindsight. See, at the time that Isaiah was writing, God had actually hidden himself from the people of Israel. God's presence, he kind of removed his presence from his people. So when Isaiah says, I'm hoping in the presence of God, I'm hoping and waiting on the Lord, he's doing so with expectancy and faith. We are living in a different world where God has actually come into our lives through the Spirit. We actually have the Spirit dwelling within us at all times. 
and we can access them through prayer. We have his presence at all times, and we can access him at all times through prayer. I like to say that prayer is the practice of the presence of God. That's what we're doing when we're praying. We are realizing the fact that God is with us now. We have something that Isaiah and other people in the Old Testament could only long for. And that is that God is with us at all times. God is with us now. He's abiding in us. He's living. He's made his dwelling within us. And I, and I, and I think we, we miss this. Matthew 13, 16 through 17, Jesus says this, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. I feel like that's lost on so many of us. We don't have to travel hundreds of miles to sacrifice a goat or a cow in a temple to be near God. We don't have to wait hundreds of years between when the prophets spoke to feel near God's presence. We have them now. We have them here. We can pray it at any moment, be near God. So we find our hope in God's word. We find our hope in God's presence. We do so by prayer. The third thing is that, that Isaiah says we're to find, God, find our hope in God's people. He says in verse 18, he says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwell on Mount Zion. I was writing, he's writing to both his disciples and, and just to the people of Israel saying, if you want to know what it looks like to fear nothing but the Lord, to hope in nothing but the Lord, to see his word as our ultimate authority and, and to seek him in prayer, then just look at us. Look at us. We are the signs. We are, we are the warnings. We are, we are the people, the, the signposts pointing to the kingdom of God. We are living out their values. We are how you can see what this looks like in real life. I can't tell you how many times I have come back to God as a result of the presence of the church. I can't tell you how many times in my life that has personally happened. When, when my instincts were to basically hide my sin and hide myself from other people, it was the church that taught me that there's safety in confession. When my professors in college would tell me that my value is going to be determined by my merit and by my output. It was the church that taught me that my value is determined by Christ's merit and Christ's output. When, all I, when my shame told me that I'm, just, I'm, I'm a sinner and I can never be near God, God can never love me, the church taught me that God is drawing near to me. He is coming to me and forgiving me by his grace. The church taught me that through the conversations I would have with other believers. It taught me that through the example that I would see in the church, both the current church and the church historically. It, I, it, it taught me that through coming to a church where the regular liturgy was that we recognize that God is holy, recognize that we are sinners, that Jesus is saving us and Jesus is sending us into this world. Now, I know this is tricky because the truth is, the sad truth is the church is not always great at this. We are not always good signs and portents, as Isaiah says. We are not always good witnesses to the character and the values of God. But, you know, and, and so I, I get that. I totally understand. But I think we use that as an excuse. I hear that as an excuse so often for why we don't submit ourselves to the authority of others, why we don't submit ourselves to each other within the church and trust the church. 
God did not save us to be a soloist. He did not save us to be alone in this. He saved us so that we can submit ourselves to one another. We can be taught by one another. This is why we stress our seas so much, uh, our redemption community, this is where this happens most, is that we look to other people who are seeking God in faith, who are revering him above all things, who are fearing him above all things, hoping him above all things. We're in that community and we're submitting ourselves to that. We're to find our hope in God's people. The last thing that Isaiah says and the last example that he gives is that we are to find hope in God's promise. We're to find hope in God's promise. So Isaiah 8 ends really bleakly. I, I always love it when we're up here reading scriptures that just ends really bad because you get up there and you're like, whoa, that was, that was heavy. He's basically saying at the end of Isaiah 8, you're going to just go into darkness and gloom, distress and disaster. That's what's, that's what's ahead. He just ends it there. It's really bad. And, and, here's, and here's the sad reality is that's what happened. The people that Isaiah was talking to didn't listen to him. All of his warnings fell on deaf ears and Assyria came through and wiped out Israel. Jerusalem and Judah were saved for a little bit. And then 150 years, Babylon came through and did the same exact thing. Destroyed the temple, destroyed everybody, brought them into exile. That their warnings were unheeded. They were brought into great distress and great darkness, as it says. And so it, it ends there, and it seems like there's no hope. But you've got to remember that Isaiah keeps writing. There's no chapter breaks in uh, Isaiah's time. And so what follows that is, is, is the reality that we can have hope. That regardless of how despairing, how, how dire circumstances get, we have hope. Let me read to you, and it might sound familiar, what follows this passage, what comes directly after this when he's saying, if you do this, you'll fall into darkness. It says in chapter 9, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. The former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, which is who he was talking to at the time. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And this might sound familiar. The people who, who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy is the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And later in verse 6, he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Even in the midst of their despair, even in the midst of the darkness, Isaiah is saying we can find hope in the fact that God has promised something better. You know, over the last uh, year, as I've kind of looked back in my own life, in my own family's life, uh, this has become a very real truth for me, that we're to find hope in God's promise. There's been really two things over this last year that's happened in my own family that has really made me made me trust and rely on this, made me realize this and remember this. And the first is that my brother-in-law... Um, Ian Danley, some of you may know him, some of you, most of you don't, but uh, he was diagnosed in September for the second time with lymphoma, and he has been undergoing cancer treatment for the last three months or so. In fact, he had just got a stem cell transplant on, I think, Monday or Tuesday of this week, 
So over the holidays, we've been in and out of the hospital with him, been helping take care of their baby. Um, it, it's been a really hard few months walking through this with him. And this is the second time this has happened. A year and a half ago, he had gone through it, went to his year checkup, was clean, and then two months later, they found it again. It's been very hard. Now, the, can- the treatment's working, and so I think we have a lot of hope that this is going to work, but it's been very, very challenging to see that. There's been so many times when I've just wanted to turn and just despair with the fact that this 30-something-year-old, very healthy man got taken out by cancer for the second time. Okay, so that's happened this last year. The other thing that's happened is uh, Lauren and I got involved with this program called Refugio, which is basically a foster care program for unaccompanied minors. Um, now, we've been basically just training and getting licensed up to this point. We were supposed to start receiving kids in February. It's all very, very fluid because it's a government-funded thing. It, there's a lot of politics involved. So the truth is we may never meet these kids, but we're supposed to meet them in February. But going through the process, learning this issue where these kids, 10, 12 years old, sometimes like as young as five or six, are making this thousand-mile journey on top of trains, through buses, where there's robbers, where there's, there's wild animals, where there's deserts and stuff like that, because they're scared to live at their own home, because they're afraid that they're going to get killed. They're afraid that they're going to starve to death. I'm, I'm learning about these situations and this deep systemic evil that I can see no way out. I I can't see any hope or salvation in any other thing. It would have been so easy with that and with with my brother-in-law's cancer to look at this life and say, what do we have to hope in? What is going on? What kind of world do we live in where 30-year-olds get cancers and kids don't feel safe at their homes? Sorry, I practice this like so many times, trying not to get choked up. I feel like Eugene Scott feels pretty much every time he gets on the stage. Um, <laughs> but, uh, sorry, that was a bad, he's not even here to defend himself. Um, I look at that, and even in the midst of those moments, I couldn't help but remember chapters like Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 65, Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 39. I couldn't help but remember the book of Daniel and all of that Jesus said and what was written in Revelation 21 that God has made a promise that this world, although it's not what it should be now, won't be like this forever. God has made a promise. Into the darkness he has sent a great light. His name is the Prince of Peace. He's the wonderful counselor. He's Emmanuel living with us now. And it's interesting because I can trust in God's promise Because the truth is, I look around this world, I know that he hasn't made it new yet. We are not living in the fulfilled kingdom. But God has kept all of his other promises. So when he made a promise, he said, I'm going to send my son into the world to take on death. To make this new. To die your death for you. And to conquer it through resurrecting. I can look at that and say, he did that. I can trust that God keeps his promises. And so because of that, I can trust and I can have hope in the fact that there will come a day when 30-year-olds won't get cancer, when kids won't flee their homes because there will be safety, there will be peace, there will be righteousness reigning in this world. There will be no more tears, there will be no more death, there will be no more violence. Do we get that? 
That is our great hope. That is what sustains us. That is what Isaiah is pointing to. That's what Isaiah is telling these people who are about to be wiped out by the Assyrians. That no matter how dark it gets, God's light is coming. And for us who are living now, His light has come. We can find hope in His promise. Um, I want to end by just asking you this question. What if in 2015, we were to look back on it, what if that is what characterized our church? What if we feared nothing but the Lord this year? What if we hoped in nothing but the Lord? What if we turned to the scripture above all things for our authority? What if we sought him in prayer when things got scary? What if we submitted ourselves, let down our pride, and invested in relationships with each other, submitted ourselves to one another? And what if we clung to the promise that God is making things new? What would that look like in this church? What would that look like in our lives if that was our hope, if that was our fear, if that was our truth, if we were to look back on 2016 and look back on this year and said, that's what characterized this year. I want you to dream. I want you to think what we could be if we feared God above all things, if we hoped in God above all things, if we saw Jesus as our ultimate hope in all things. I want to pray, and then uh, we're going to take communion together. So let me pray. Lord God, I know, Lord, how desperately we need you. I know how desperately we, we desire your presence, God. And so bring your presence now. Lord, you have brought it through your spirit, and we trust in that. Lord, I pray that we would seek you in all things. Lord, we'd hope in you in all things, that we'd fear you above all things. God, that you would be um, revered as holy in our lives. Lord, and that that would change us. Lord, that it would transform our future. Lord, that we would be a fearless church because we feared you so much. We'd be a hope-filled church because we know you keep your promises. God, we love you, and we pray this in your name. Amen.